Are you ever afraid of losing your job because of artificial intelligence? What sounds kind of bizarre for the most of us is actually becoming reality for millions of people in the US. There are around about 4 million truck drivers in the United States right now whose job is highly on risk because of artificial intelligence and the way it's going to impact mobility. Studies shown that automatic driving is not really far away from us. And as you guys can see, Tesla does it, Google is working on concepts of self-driving cars. So we're actually not quite far away from just leaning back and relax while we're on the road and some Robert cruises us to our next destination. But what is artificial intelligence? Is it something like in the movie I, Robert? Will we all get controlled by robots and machines and algorithms? Or is it actually beneficial in our day-to-day -day tasks? Can it save lives or even create a more fair and equal society? When it comes to AI, a lot of people have an opinion, but they don't quite seem to know what it's really about. And in today's episode, I'll be talking with Lars Loich. Lars Loich is a Harvard graduate who studied applied math with an emphasis on computer science and artificial intelligence. Besides the fact that we, he was part of the men's rowing team, Lars is an expert when it comes to artificial intelligence. And we chat about the future. We chat about what's gonna happen in 20, 30 years, how the world's gonna look like, what are the potential dangers of AI, and how it can improve and benefit our life. On top of that, we discuss the institution Harvard and look into the very common myths, shady places, the, the narratives about the Ivy League school, why it is so prestigious and exclusive, and where the main differences are between a regular university and Harvard. Also, he mentions that going to Harvard can be really stressful just in terms of the fact that you feel the pressure, that it can be overwhelming sometimes to have lunch or dinner with the next Mark Zuckerberg or Barack Obama. And even though Lars was going to the same classes than every other regular student in Harvard, he still had the athletic side and he was still competing for the school, he was still training every day, waking up 6.30 in the morning, hit the gym, try to get better at roaring. Lars really did a lot of stuff during his time and it was really nice to talk with him. He's a really chill dude to be honest. And this is probably one of my favorite episodes. I'm, I have to say it all over again because after the, after the interview, I, fe I really feel I learned something from Lars and just the whole talk about artificial intelligence, how to manage your time. And that's why I can highly recommend you guys to listen to this episode. Or um, I know you guys really enjoy it, but let's jump right into the three things that you're going to get from Lars Lorch today. The first thing is probably the fact that you don't have to be afraid of certain conventions. Because if you look at it, Lars is a pretty average dude from a small town in Germany who made it all the way to Harvard and now is part of the top 5% of this population. And this is really inspiring to be others because he's not just some rich dude who got all the tuition paid by his parents. No, he really worked his way up to get a, to get a position at Harvard and, and, and to study there. And I think that's really inspiring. Second of all, when he talks about the high depression rates of Harvard students, he just teaches us that in a world we constantly compare one another with others, 
it could be good sometimes to just step back a little bit and stop comparing ourselves with others and just being relaxed about the current situation we're in and just the fact that we don't need to be the best out of the best all the time because if you really face it there's always going to be a dude that has a better career better grades or better athletic performance than we do last but not least Lars obviously talks about artificial intelligence and it's just really interesting to hear where we are in 10 years how close we are from artificial intelligence being implemented in our day-to-day tasks and how it actually could be beneficial for us. This is Starstripe Stories with Lars Loich, an episode I highly love and please just show Lars some love, enjoy the heck out of the podcast and let's go. What's up everybody, welcome to another episode of Star Stripe Stories. Today I'm talking with Lars Loich. Hi, thanks for having me. That is a, quite an exciting name, Lars Loich. <laughs> you have that nice uh, alliteration in yeah. there. Because um, um, my, na- my second name is Pricework and it gets like super confusing when, when Americans trying to pronounce it. Do you have like any similar problems with that? Yeah, I, I, I often use a Starbucks name, so called Starbucks name. My my freshman year roommate started calling me Larry. Mm. So as soon everyone picked up that my American name is Larry. So every every time I order something, instead of saying my real name, I say Larry. It's just Larry. Everyone knows what Larry is. No one knows what Lars is. And I I don't want to start spelling my name at Starbucks. That's yeah. Especially I think like at Starbucks they mess it up. Like they do it on purpose. I don't know. Like they have them. They should check their workers for sure. Yeah. Um. Well. You experienced something only a very few selected people were able to experience. You graduated from Harvard University um, this spring. Yes. Um, and this is something that is really outstanding for most of the people. Um, first question for me, and probably for some listeners who might have potential career path um, uh, options, how did, how did you get into a school like Harvard? How is that possible? How does that work? Yeah, the, I think that's a long story. Basically, I came from the athlete side of things because um, there are all sorts of different ways people get into a school like that. I, I was rowing in high school and at a level where um, I thought maybe coaches in America could be interested in, in kind of my performance. So I reached out to an organization called Scholarbook mm-hmm. who, who basically get you in touch with people in the US who might be interested in your performance. So I never thought, oh, my, my dream was never, oh, I could apply to an Ivy League school because I, I honestly haven't even heard of many of them except maybe Harvard or Princeton. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wasn't like planning on going there. But when, when my, my kind of my, my rowing credentials were sent out and like all the schools replied, it kind of, I kind of like woke up and thought, wow, this could be like, this could be a real opportunity. So then I started talking to the coaches and, and they kind of, they explained everything to you. They invited you over for an official visit, nice. and then uh, 
yeah, you have to go through all, you have to check all the boxes every other applicant has to do as well. You have to mm-hmm. take the SAT, it's like an English test and math test. And then obviously your high school grades count. You go to an, an interview and you write an essay. And so there are like a lot of s- small parts that go into an application. But yeah, in the end it, it worked out. You get you, you do get support as an athlete, but you do at, at a school like Harvard, you also have to fulfill. Well, it's it's certainly not kind of like a similar way you apply to any other colleges. Like that's what I, I could imagine. Um, I mean, besides your grades, they need to be awesome in high school for sure. Um, but you were talking about like interviews, background checks, essays you kind of have had to had to write to get into a school. Like imagine sitting in an interview, what is the stuff um, that matters to Harvard for getting accepted? Like what do they want to hear? What kind of lifestyle you need to have? What kind of uh, things you need to do in your life to get, get in a school like that? Yeah, so I actually think the interview is, has like a very, very small component. The interview, they actually, mm-hmm. they just talk to you like even me talk now and kind of want to know what kind of personality you have. I don't think they, they don't ask you any trick questions. They don't ask you like a logic puzzle or anything like that. They ask you, I don't know, how are your parents doing? Like, what did you do last summer? They maybe, as international, they might want to know how, how good your English actually is mm. compared to what your results say. Okay. Um, I think they do care a lot about like the whole package. Like people at Harvard are often good at something very specifically, but it doesn't always have to be academic. So you might have like a world-class mathematician, but you also might have like a, a violinist or like an athlete. So I think they, they look for the whole package rather than a specific thing. Okay, that's 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 nice to hear. So there's hope for everyone out there. Yeah, I sure. guess. <laughs> yeah, some kind of talent for sure. Well, they specifically focus on on personality. Can you say that? Um, you need to, you need to be character to go to go there. Maybe uh, there are certainly a lot of characters there mm-hmm. uh, in a good and a bad sense. But uh, <laughs> can you imagine? Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I can't point at like a specific personality trait they they might. You know ask for but if you if once you are there i think one thing you really notice is that basically everyone is really competitive like mm-hmm. in academics or whatever they do like they're really competitive like no one you know hangs up, like no one like you know skips days and weeks of lectures and then crams everything in in the in at the end they all like they go really go to the to the library and study so is that what you would call um a Harvard spirit, for example, like the people have a certain drive to be successful. Is that what you see at Harvard in particular? Yeah, I would say so. I think so. There's a difference between what Harvard brands itself at and mm. what it actually feels like. So interesting. I think Harvard brands itself as like a very diverse place where like people from all backgrounds can come. They get find a lot of financial aid to study there. Like a lot of people don't have to pay anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they brand themselves as like a very diverse place because maybe I think it's within their mission statement. I yeah, read something about for that. Sure. Yeah. I think that's definitely yeah. That's probably what they say and what they also try to do, because historically, maybe 150 years ago, I mean, it probably wasn't like that. And even only in the 1960s, they started accepting women to Harvard itself. Wow. So it's not that long ago, right? Yeah. So now, like they emphasize that's this whole diversity wow, thing. There, there was Radcliffe College, which was basically the women's equivalent, but it wasn't. You didn't get a Harvard degree at the end. You got you got a Radcliffe degree. <laughs> which is i mean 50 years ago so is it is it diverse then are there stories of super poor people who are just there because of their uh, personality or because of their intelligence or their grades is that actually true or is it just uh marketing it is true to an extent Mm -hmm. um because they they the the student body is like 
is diverse in the sense that they foster diversity in a certain part, but also you, you have these like legacy students who basically are like eighth generation, you know, Harvard student, right? All their grandparents were there before, right? It's very different, it's like diverse to the, the actual, like, you know, normal people, and then you have athletes, but then they also have, you know, they have people from like from like very poor backgrounds who like worked themselves up, you know, had an outstanding high school career, and then they get a chance to study there, which is great. Well, I, I love your position that you're having in Harvard because you're obviously not, not one of those spoiled spoiled kids uh, that just go there because their parents have a lot of money. Um, and that's why I really like your neutral position on, uh, on Harvard because you can really judge Harvard from the perspective that you are, like you are responsible for getting into that position and not your, your dad or your mom who's just paying a lot of money. So I really like that um, position that you're having right now. Um, well, you, you mentioned it a little bit, uh, there are a lot of people who were the best at their previous high school. They were the best at the previous sports institution whatsoever. And now all of a sudden you get thrown into an environment where everyone is the best. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. I think I, I've not known people that, you know, play, played football in high school and then they get, they, they play football at college and suddenly like they're only surrounded by people who were the best where they mm -hmm. came from because they collect people from all over the world. Right. So yeah, for some reason I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have much of a problem with that because it, in rowing itself, even at my own club at home, I was never like the very best. Mm -hmm. I was never like the, the strongest. So mm -hmm. when I got there, it wasn't like a shock for me. I was kind of used to being, obviously I was good, but, but I wasn't like, you know, the best of all. Mm -hmm. So for me, it wasn't as much of a shock as maybe to other people. Mm -hmm. um, But, but even academics. Like well, people, that's, that's what I'm talking about specifically, are the like, academics. People are really competitive. And, uh -huh. and, and there is, I mean, you don't get like bad grades at Harvard. There's something called grade inflation. Like people do get good grades, but that doesn't mean the workload is low. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean people aren't competitive. And because people have like this, this drive there, there is like people, people do have mental health issues there. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I can imagine. I can imagine. Hard, like, it's hard. hard. There's a lot of support structure by Howard if you have any sort of, you know, depression and that, that stuff happens. Friends of mine mm. were going through that stuff. Because like picturing yourself in a situation where you have straight A's your whole life yeah. and then all of a sudden you get into Harvard and you have a C. I mean, you still pass the class, but yeah. for, for most people it's devastating. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of hard just to be in that environment. And then you were talking about that success-driven environment as well. Um, well, do you see besides the mental health problems, but there are there any other like negative aspects of just living in a living in an environment where everything is so focused on being successful? Yeah, so I, you basically notice when you when you live there because you live in the dorm mm -hmm. with everyone else. You're in right. Cambridge, like a small like a suburb of Boston. Basically, you live mm -hmm. in like everyone calls it the bubble. Like you live, you only live like right. hang out with Howard people and everything that seems normal to you, mm. like is not normal at all to everyone else. Like mm. just like a hundred meters outside in, in a different part of the town. Mm. Like you think it's normal that you have to like cram in your assignment and stay up till 3 a.m. Because it's some absurd like 20 Is it actually the way like, how much sleep did you get in the last four years? Well, for me, it's a different <laughs> problem because I also have to, you know, get up at 6.30 to yeah, go yeah, we'll come to, that to, to go to rowing. Yeah. Um, but so I was trying to be disciplined with that. But, uh, People, yeah, some people pull all nighters. I, I wasn't, I always found a way to avoid that, but mm. <clears throat> people like, they, they try to get, they get, try to get a hundred out of a hundred on every homework. Like, if you have, 
even if the last five points might, like might take you to office hours of your professor and you have to ask him about like specific problem like people you know go out of their way to get 100 on every single homework mm -hmm. and wow like, I, I i've never had any any of that yeah. before i got there well that makes you definitely a nice guy because yeah. <laughs> who likes those guys who run into an office of yeah. some dean and say like hey i only got an, a 90 out of 100 can i do anything to get yeah. that well you mentioned pressure and you mentioned um this aspect of harvard there there has been a very famous TED talk of Alex Chang, I don't know if you watched it, it kind of blew up on YouTube, where he's like talking about the unspoken reality be, uh, behind Harvard Gates. And he says that 50% of Harvard students experience some kind of depression or anxiety in their uh, four years at Harvard. Do you think that's true? I can see that being true. I mean, mm. anxiety probably 100% at some point, but depression is obviously a serious thing. Mm. And, and No, I think he said yeah. depression, so it's actually... Yeah. It's um, actually Seriously. with I mean the kind of people that uh, end up there mm. they are competitive and they, they do want to succeed so often if they you know if they're a little bit inferior than their peers like mm. it goes to them like in a deep way and they it's hard maybe to sometimes get out of the bubble and notice right. that you know in the grand scheme of things it doesn't really matter if I get only 80 out of 100 at this mm. problem set so a lot of it has to do with comparison, I, I, oh, I guess. It, it, you have to like learn to not compare yourself because, yeah. especially at that place, there will always be someone who's much better at what right. you're doing. So. <laughs> Some guy will love, but that's life, guys. Like, yeah. oh, there's always yeah. going to be someone that's better. It's a good than lesson you. to learn at some point. That's very wise, actually. You were talking about um, this bubble that you're in. You're into a very, very elite environment, obviously. You could be sitting and having lunch with the next Mark Zuckerberg or with the next Barack Obama or whoever, you name it. Um, well, this obviously creates this success-driven um, mentality of those guys, but um, that can be also very beneficial for you. To, to have lived with people like that, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like to experience that drive. Yeah, it's true. About. I mean, you, you, you do learn um, how to be a workaholic, <laughs> how, to, how to like... How to like like love your work and mm. how to you know work hard and, and all that stuff I think yeah it's good to have experienced that for mm. sure other other reasons why these high numbers of depression might come on what do you think besides comparison is it is it the parents is it future jobs what what are the reasons why people work so hard because well there's nothing wrong with skipping maybe one class or yeah, skipping no. one homework, you know, like you need to find like a nice work-life balance, you know, but what's what's the reason they're so, you know, they, they go so hard on themselves? Yeah, I think, I mean, as I said, I think it's because their personalities mm -hmm. that brought them there um, caused that. But I mean, in some case, in my, in my case, for, definitely not. But in some case, it might be their parents who have been successful, you know, who do own companies. Right. And... Obviously, you go there because you all your, your, your whole youth, you ticked all the boxes to you know, mm. make your application as likely as successful as possible. Right. I think they start like at a super low age. Like, probably yeah. there, there's probably people I don't know. I never experienced that, but there's people that are working their whole childhood probably just to go to school. To school yeah, like that. I mean, they. I mean, parents in for certain you know category of the applicants, you know, parents are wealth are wealthy, mm. and it's not like they buy their children's way into Harvard but they they do you know it does cost money to give your children like a top-notch ed education mm, so sure. they do they do tick all the boxes early to get you there and then 
yeah. So maybe they experience some kind of pressure from their parents. Mm. But I think it's mostly on themselves. I mean, I would be surprised if a 20-year-old still, you know, feels pressure by their parents. But, you know, if they have, like, if they have had a successful career, maybe it, it goes to them in a, in a way. Yeah, well, that's a serious thing for sure. You mentioned that you were part of men's rowing, um, which is very typical, Harvard, to be honest. Like I, met, like, I want my son to be a part of the rowing club in Harvard, be part of the, the choir in Harvard and sing at, I don't know, some Christmas convention, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's always been a dream of mine. <laughs> so, um, obviously, you have two sides of going to Harvard. You have the academic side, but you also have the athletic side. Um, you mentioned it. you woke up every day at 6.30. Describe maybe a typical day in the life of uh, a student athlete at, at Harvard University. So, first of all, I have to say I love it. I think I mean, I love, I love the sport there more than in Germany because you, mm. you row, for, like, you identify with the team, like, you, you mm. row with the big H on your chest and you row with 30 other guys mm. who are, like, basically your best friends. Mm, cool. And then, you know, working hard together doesn't, isn't that bad anymore. And I mean, we didn't have like six thirties every morning, but probably like four days a week and wow. then nine to 10 sessions a week. So on a, on a, like a long day, it'd be like uh, seven, seven AM in the boathouse. Okay. And then you start warming up and then you go row basically no matter what the weather's like. And, uh, and you mostly like hard sessions in the morning on the water. And then you come back at nine, nine thirty. you go straight to breakfast and first lecture might start at 10. Okay. Then you have classes, maybe depending on your schedule, but maybe till two or three with mm -hmm. some breaks in between. And then, you know, most days you have afternoon practice as well. So you might go in the water again mm. at like three or four, or you might go have a lift and stuff like that. So then after all, you go straight back to dinner. Dinner finishes at seven and then your whole right. day is done. You have no energy, but you still haven't done any homework. So yeah. yeah. Then you have to kind of fit that in to get... In, and in it's Harvard homework. It's yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know it's Harvard homework. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, especially if you uh, depends on the class, but it takes a lot of time. Yeah, and you have to kind of fit that in, so you get eight hours to sleep to wake up. And you need get, those eight hours. It's not that those, it's yeah. not that you can like survive with having four hours a day. So, but you probably get used to it a little bit after a couple of while. Like you get into your routine, probably. Yeah. So it it kind of makes makes things easier, I guess. Yeah, you you definitely get in a routine. And you, you learn how to schedule your time. So I think I was probably more efficient with, you know, timing my homeworks and my assignments because mm -hmm. I always knew, you know, I have to finish this. I didn't procrastinate as much because I knew, oh, I have to be at oh, the boat okay. again at four. Okay. So I have to get this done now. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble. So, yeah. so you kind of learn to, to, to be disciplined. I mean, you're obviously in, you're into sports your whole life, but probably Harvard helped you with that kind of aspect to be like self-organized yeah. and that stuff. Yeah, you learn how to squeeze every minute out of you, you learn being efficient with your time mm -hmm. well when I think of Harvard um, I think of the social network the movie <laughs> <laughs> biography of Mike Zuckerberg or just the way he worked I think of those secret student clubs I think of this kind of like a mysterious place where there's just a bunch of rich people and super intelligent people um, do you have like any stories we really say yeah that that might be typical Harvard Well, yeah, I mean, those student clubs exist. Um, I mean, the, in Facebook, the Facebook movie, the social network, the mm. Winklevoss twins, they were in a club and it's, it, it gets kind of mysterious, like it's kind of mysterious in the mm -hmm. movie. And it, it is in some sense also at the university, but Howard doesn't even recognize them as part of the university. And um, that's a whole like, you know, issue I don't want to necessarily discuss because mm. there's a lot of, you know, 
uh, issues regarding can you be in the club even if you if you're a student there. But uh, there are a lot of like different Harvard aspects that are pretty Harvard in some sense that don't involve the club. Like for example, one fun fun story you know my family always loved to hear about was the night before exams every semester. There's like a thing called primal scream, where in like the center of the university. Um, there's like a big yard where all the old houses are. Yeah. At midnight before exam starts, everyone runs like a naked lap around the court. Oh no way! And like for real naked, like yeah. men, women, everyone. <laughs> it's like it's so fun, and and especially when exams start in December, like in Boston, it's really cold. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. People people wear winter boots, but nothing else, and then they run around. Well, I I just thinking about you have those bunch of super smart people, and then they're running around. You know, that's like the complete opposite of being smart is running around campus being naked. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, not everyone does it, but like yeah, it, yeah. you have to get around it. Takes like, courage, though. Takes yeah. courage. Yeah, you have to get around it. And the funny thing is, like you know, once you do it, like it's just like it's so fun. No one looks at anyone. Like you just run as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Well, that's. That's hilarious. Did you ever? Did you ever had the feeling? Well, I'm too stupid for Harvard. Just when you sit there, you look at others. I mean, I know you're not like, you don't compare yourself with others, which is great. But you obviously had those moments. Like, wait, I mean, wait, yeah. it was like, fuck, I, I don't catch up with classes. I feel, I feel desperate as well. I feel anxious as well. I think it's true. I think you, if you, they're always like super like super smart people and mm. they're just in a different league mm. you know won gold medals at math olympiads and stuff like wow. that uh you don't i mean i pretty quickly noticed that you, you just can't compare yourself with those people and you don't have to because you do fine even without doing that and and what i noticed is that like you go there when i when i went there in 2015 as a freshman i thought oh my god what is it going to be like like am i even going to pass the course well how did you even imagine going to harvard because you obviously had probably the same image of social network yeah. in your head and that my, i'm and, having right and my mom especially my mom was worried she was like oh if he's is he ever going to come back is he going to be like mm-hmm. you know just hang out with spoiled kids and like all that <laughs> stuff but it's completely not like that yeah. i found very good friends there i don't think i changed much you know at least not in a bad way coming home and uh yeah that I, I can see that being super hard going there and then it says but yeah well, you're all of a sudden you're into that elite environment and but what you know what you notice is that like even when you're there like everyone is still you know cooking with water in some sense like mm-hmm. everyone you know is it's just a normal person and well that's true yeah. and like you do fine like it's not impossible I can imagine there's there's hella drugs involved into that school just to keeping up those all-nighters. <laughs> there has to be some kind of substance yeah, involved, man. Like <laughs> some kind of stuff needs to be going on there. <laughs> well, we were talking about before the podcast, we were talking about kind of like the mission statement of Harvard. We said they're really trying to be um, diverse in some some extent. And yeah. you already mentioned it. Um, well, for me, it's kind of hard to, to, to think about it because we heard about those those recent um, scandals where super rich people trying to try to cheat their kids into in, into a school like Harvard. And then you have this, but on the other hand, like the school claims to be diverse and claims to be kind of for everybody who's, who's efficient with their work, who's hardworking and all that stuff. But then you hear about those rich people cheating their kids into a school, man. Yeah, I mean, that's like, it's kind of, the, it's kind of the aspiration versus the reality. Mm. Like, it is it is true that they do like they do foster diversity and they do include everyone and mm-hmm. all that stuff but it's also true that you know 
if when Obama's daughter applies, she'll get in and like she's there at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's like I think two years below me. Okay. And, uh, is she nice? I've never talked to her, but <laughs> you, you do you do walk over the street and suddenly like she walks past. Well, me is she like, still uh, just quickly? Is she still like famous over there? Oh yeah. So she is. So there's no like. Well, it's just Obama's daughter. No, everyone, <laughs> that's like everyone, nothing. Everyone, like, everyone is like turning around when she walks. Oh, really? Okay. Like I mean, depends on the circle. I mean, mm. um, if you hang out with her, it's normal. But that's like I guess I guess another typical Howard thing if you see people like that. But uh, yeah. yeah, we were talking about like if if Harvard is really diverse, if Harvard is yeah, really so for the, everyone who wants to put in the work. I think they kind of trade off the fact that. If they, you know, get a two million dollar donation by some, you know, famous pe- famous person, that does pay for like, you know, I don't know how many other people go in there for free, like, mm-hmm. not paying tuition. So that's true. I think it's like they they try to balance it, like. So there is some kind of help from oh, yeah. a lot of rich people that are putting putting in. The There's market. a lot of financial aid for people that you know. Okay, cool. Couldn't afford it. That's good to hear, actually, because yeah. I was, man, we both heard about that scandal that happens where super rich and not. That's that's super crazy, man. Like those people, they can provide their kids with everything, like tutoring, everything, and yeah. but they still need to cheat. And like, just thinking yeah. thinking about it, you're not maybe not in the best household, you know, but you're working your butt off every day, and then you hear about whoever I don't I forgot yeah. their names, but super rich people cheating in their their kids at the school, man. Yeah, it's, it's I, absurd. That's and also there's this culture of the the graduates, the Harvard graduates, who are really just trying to to put their kids in uh, into Harvard as well. Yeah. No, it, it, as I said, I mean, I know people who are eighth generation Harvard students mm-hmm. and like, it's almost automatic that like, it's, it's almost like Harvard doesn't want to mess up your streak. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they like they won't not let you in if you have like, if you ticked all the boxes correctly, like, uh, that's, that's like, definitely true. And it creates kind of this elite circle. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not good. Um, I don't like it. I don't think it's, I think, uh, it's not good that just because your parents went there, it doesn't make you any more, you know, justified to get there. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's not even like they pay a lot of money in some in some cases. It's just like your parents went there, makes you more likely that you get in. Like that is, I don't see any reason why that should be the case. Mm-hmm. Like it's not fair. It, as you said, it, it creates a circle of like you know, if if you're already advantaged in growing up, mm-hmm. then you have an advantage later on. Like that's doesn't fall. Well, it's an investment in your future. I mean, it's like I don't know. I think. Last time I checked, the tuition was like 60,000 60, or something. Yeah, like I mean, to go in Harvard, but I, I'm assuming those people they they would pay hundred thousand as well. Like, yeah, like I, they don't they don't care because it's care. a it's an investment in the future. Because I mean, I, I don't know. Did you apply to to any jobs yet, or what what is your plan after the graduation? Because I'm assuming you probably get whatever you want. You know, like you don't really have to. Yeah. Well, how does that work? Well, the normal. Uh, course of action is that junior summer so the year before you graduate you mm. do some kind of internship you know oh, okay half the people go into some sort of consulting or finance internship mm-hmm. and then 90 percent of those people get a job offer basically before they start their last year so they already have wow. a job set up okay um i'm not sure if that's specific to harvard or if that's just the way the american colleges work but yeah. you do get basically you do get internships at the very best firms and then mm-hmm. you do get there my me personally i because i'm kind of I'm more like I guess tend to be more on the academic side I'm interested in like AI and all that stuff maybe we're going to talk about yeah, it later yeah, but yeah. I, I'm going to do a master's and a PhD after this so I'm not thinking about working for a long time yeah yeah well yeah let's jump right into it um, what did you study? I studied applied math um, jeez 
and uh, <laughs> with a focus in computer science and uh, and uh, AI, yeah. which is obviously a hot topic right now. I came mm-hmm. there thinking I wanted to do economics and more finance mm-hmm. stuff, but I did a short internship my freshman summer and noticed that I just didn't feel like you have like some real impact doing that. And I, I, I took some CS courses and I noticed that you know, like the stuff you do there, like even though it's, you know, it's on a computer, but you can, it doesn't take long to do something that actually works and okay. then you can achieve something. Mm. You can help someone. You can well, you said you want to have an, you said in economics, you don't have an impact. What kind of impact do you want oh, to have? I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, I don't want to say you don't have an impact, but I was in, I did an internship in, a, in like a part of a bank where they basically, they traded such complex mm. products and, and derivatives and stuff. Like you, you have complex models that you know value the products they deal in some way and then okay. only by changing the parameters a little bit on how you know the your book is is being valued you make loss of, loss of uh, profit mm-hmm. loss of profit and uh, even though you didn't change anything in your book so it's like all kind of it's all kind of a big like it's not made up but it's all like it's like a bubble kind it's, it only depends well. on how other people think uh-huh how valuable your products are depends on how valuable they actually are mm. and when I when I took CS or like even also machine learning and AI I thought you know I'm actually being productive here I can you know in my first machine learning course you know in just basically kind of a small project you learn how to program a bot that you know do you remember the game Flappy Bird yeah you, you program well, it was an amazing a, game yeah people died of it yeah like, <laughs> I heard that story too well, there was a sorry, man. That's just too hilarious. There was this big hype of freaking Flappy Bird, man. And I think what was it called? Like there was in one story where I think like some guy, some crazy guy, killed like his brother because he beat like his record or something. Like people died know. of Flappy Bird. I'm sorry. The, the, yeah, I heard some. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't take long. Yeah, it, it's not. It takes a few lines of code, and mm-hmm. you program a bot who, who it's not hard coded to be good at Flappy Bird, but who learns. It, it itself learns how to be good at Flappy Bird, just you know, being fed into the parameters of the game. Well, the machine learns how to be good at Flappy Bird, or the the machine, the, 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 the algorithm, the machine. The algorithm. It's okay. not being told how to play; it just learns. You know, you can jump or not jump, mm-hmm. and it learns within like a short amount of time. Wow. To and sometimes be better than humans at being playing Flappy Bird, and uh-huh. you know, when you when you learn about things like that, I just found that so much more fascinating than yeah being in like. In a, you and know. you said it is a hot topic right now like artificial it intelligence it's everywhere people talking about it all the time uh, my problem is like I read about I, like I read about it I hear podcasts about it but I mean what to a certain extent I think a lot of people talking about AI but they don't really know what it is yeah well it, AI has had like many it's not it's pretty old actually like it started already in the 70s and 80s but then mm. Back then, people didn't have the the computational power yet to actually harness the strength of, especially like non-neural networks. Mm-hmm. And now everyone talks about deep learning. It's like a this is like the the buzzword, but it means nothing nothing but using neural networks to you know do predictions and all sorts of tasks. Okay. And I think kind of since 2010 2011, people started realizing how to use computers. We we got computers that are not strong enough. What kind of predictions? I'm sorry. Like, is it like some business predictions, economic predictions, political prediction, and how accurate are they? So that's the cool thing. Basically, anything, uh-huh. as long as you have data. So, and that is also uh-huh. part of it, as long as... So it just really depends on how much data resources you have? Exactly. So, 
since the 2000s, 2010s, we, we started having like more and more connected devices. People started collecting more data. Mm -hmm. And once you have a lot of data, you can, you can basically harness deep learning and machine learning in general to you know, pre make predictions. So it can be weather predictions, it can be predictions of political outcomes, sports predictions. It can be, and, and deep learning specifically got really good now at language, natural language processing. Yeah. So, you know, Google Translate yeah. or image, image processing. Like, I mean, now, today, uh, machine learning or deep learning is better at diagnosticizing, uh, diagnosing uh, breast cancer right. given an image than, an, than a human expert. Yeah, I, I read about it. It's like especially in the like medical field, um, the people are using this this kind of prediction method, and I and I, I really think that is something super beneficial. I mean, you yeah. can predict or like talk about the risks of, of something so much more accurate than humans can do. Um, but then on the other hand, like when you're looking at the at the companies or the firms that do have this research, well, it's probably Facebook, Google. Um, yeah. Amazon. Well, it's all, Amazon, so it's only like, let's say like three, four, five, maybe five uh, companies that own the majority of all the data yeah. and which, which kind of creates a monopoly. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I really think AI is something that has so many, like so many benefits, as yeah. you mentioned, yeah, yeah. but then so many, like just stuff that freaks me out kind of. Yeah. I think oh, what, you, what you say about those few companies is definitely true. Aren't they called like the big five? something like I mean something like that there's also like a, a, a term like that in consulting I'm not sure maybe it's also that but uh, it is true that we do notice that especially in deep learning mm -hmm. the, the kind of the trendy models that now you know break all the benchmarks you do need a lot of data to be good at, that, mm. at it and it is true that Google Facebook Amazon buy their product they get a ton of data right more than any you know they have kind of monopoly of data and yeah. like you know there's just you know catchy phrase data is a new oil and in some sense like with deep learning that's kind of true like if, if you have a lot of the data you you have the better model I and mean, you basically can predict everything do you feel yeah. like well you're coming from that from that expert standpoint um do you actually see ai as harmful or something good or something in between yeah good question i mean i also actually took a course on like kind of the ethics of ai in my last year now mm. and I, I started becoming a little more skeptical like mm. it, I'm still really fascinated about it and I, I think we're so far from being any any close to anything like general generally intelligent because that's what people I guess strive for mm. anything like you know a human being but um, it, it really doesn't to me and I heard that through podcasts as well like it, it's not really it doesn't really matter whether we're close to being in a dangerous part of AI mm. it's just like whether it comes in 550 or 500 years like it's gonna come is it if, if, <laughs> if we given the current trajectory mm. no matter if there's some rate of progress like there's no reason why we shouldn't get there like we have squishy brains and they achieve that mm. with some like biological connections like computer connections are much faster like there's no we're just not we don't have the the math yet once we figure out the math like it, it can be potentially pretty dangerous mm. and that's scary but, uh, well, I think it gets scary when the machine, and we were talking about that, kind of teaches itself how to develop. So, because yeah. um, I mean, humans have that same potential, but it just takes so much longer. So over the evolution, we just got more developed. We, yeah. we learn how to think uh, better, build stuff, invented stuff. But I, I'm, I'm assuming those machines or algorithm, whatever it is, 
they, they're just going to teach themselves so quickly how to pick up stuff, how to develop, how to get better. So it's, it's just going to be a blink of an evolutionary eye, you know, to put it that way. And those machines will be just superior or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, so far we just, we, we are able to develop um, models that are really good at specific tasks like mm. image recognitions, like language understanding. Mm. But we basically, I think what's going to happen is that we, we're really good at all the islands and suddenly, you know, there might be something that's, you know, generally intelligent. I don't know what it's going to look like. No one knows, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think we're like, um, I mean, Jan Lecan, who's one of the most famous or successful deep learning researchers, mm. he, he said we're, we're not even close to building, to building anything as intelligent as a rat in the general right. sense. Um, so we're much closer to the intelligent washing machine than we are to Terminator. But okay. Maybe it doesn't so no, no Terminator in the next five years. No, <laughs> but in some sense, thanks like, God. <laughs> I mean, people like Elon Musk. They say it's AI is the most, it's, it's the biggest threat to humanity. Well, in, that's in great because he's years, he's working in that field. Yeah, right. I mean, he has these crazy hypotheses that he's developing this uh, link to your brain. That basically, his theory is like the only way humans survive AI is if humans merge with AI. Mm. That sounds so scary. Well, it does. We're so far from that, I think. Yeah. But, but there's some truth in. I think you have to think about it. I went. I went to um, a museum in, in, in Stockholm where they kind of like um, showed potential future ideas. Uh, you know, like stuff that's gonna happen within the next five to fifty years. And there was this social. It was called social robot. You know, and it social was. Robot. Yeah, it was like. I think you can still you can already purchase that and it's like it's like a robot that learns your character traits that learns what you like that learns what you don't like and then um, because of all that data the robot gets over the time um, he's gonna develop like a like a social relationship to it's like almost like a friend like you you meet a new person and in the beginning you don't know anything about him but the more you get to know the person the, the better relationship you're going to form. And, and, yeah. and there's like those robots that, yeah, they call them like social robot, robots, I think. And yeah, they basically teach themselves um, what the owner likes and, and then they're having like conversation and everything. It's like a, it's like a developed Alexa or yeah, Siri yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. you know? I don't know. Have you seen Ex Machina, the movie? Mm -mm. You should definitely see it because okay. it's about exactly that. It's like it's basically about a robot that has like human-like traits and basically tricks in the end tricks the human to like her okay. and uh, has a bad ending. I don't I don't want to spoil it, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, I was I robot. <laughs> it's crazy because like if you know like if you know something about kind of the technical side of it, like it's all just math. It's mm -hmm. just equations, and uh, it feels like AI experts in parentheses like yeah uh, they they don't really have much of a clue of how it works. They just kind of figured out ways in that work. So I don't think there's any, any, we're not close to, you know, knowing at all what's going on in the sense of how to program something generally intelligent, but like. So if you would say like, how close are we from AI taking over? Not taking over, but being implemented in, in, in our daily life. Well, it, I think it's like a, it's not a, there's not a like an abrupt thing where suddenly right. it doesn't happen overnight. No, yeah. I think it happens slowly. And, you know, with Alexa in your living room, like it's like the first part of it. And then, <laughs> I mean, you can install apps that, you know, 
turn the heating up when it's cold and then you can you can call it and say you know start. Alexa play iRobot <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then it goes off but uh, so it's a slow I think it's it's gonna be like slowly integrated into our uh -huh. lives and we're gonna slowly start depending on it when it like the, people like you know with apocalyptic thoughts maybe you think that there will be the day where the robots will take over mm. um, I mean there's a big question where like when will there be AGI so artificial general intelligence and mm. experts say you know, 50 years is not unrealistic. Mm. I think it's maybe a little bit quickly, but uh, you know, as I said, it probably doesn't matter to humanity if it's mm. now or in 500 yeah, years. Yeah. Well, there's a, another really big debate which always occurs when it comes to AI. And that is um, most definitely a, a topic where you can all already see the influences of AI, and that is the transportation um, thing. So you have Google self-driving taxis, you have Tesla self-driving cars, um, um, there's some prototypes of self-driving uh, trucks yeah. and, and, and all that stuff and um, one problem that occurs with that is a lot of people just basically gonna lose their jobs because yeah. of that. No, for sure and it's not, not necessarily only transportation but automation in general like mm -hmm. a lot of tasks and now even um, non-routine tasks are being able to uh, are starting to get automated and you know yeah truck drivers I'm, I don't think it's looking great for truck drivers mm. in the next 10 20 years um, but <laughs> that's horrible to yeah it's horrible that, yeah. but you know I mean people have obviously talked and thought about that issue a lot and mm. it's hard to find an immediate solution but looking back in history like there have been moments there have been a lot of moments in the past where people right. have, have thought you know now it's like automation like this is the end of the workforce like um, you know the, the invention of the steam engine like mm -hmm. no more work industrial people. revolution it yeah. turns out that you know today more people are working percentage wise than in all of the past mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. almost everyone has work even though there's a lot of automation because so people basically move away from you know the repetitive hard like physical work and then they start getting you know work that is maybe more pleasant like the ATM automated teller machine where you get your money today like yeah. back in the days that used to be someone at the bank who gives you your money like it, it's not like those people don't have jobs anymore they work at the bank they have maybe more interesting tasks they can do yeah. but there's some truth that, that maybe just that, that there's a consideration that maybe this time it might be different because all, all, the, all the way in the past we always replaced kind of we kind of outsourced physical work that we right. produced with our fingers and our feet to a machine and then started using our brain more, mm -hmm. more intellectual tasks. Mm -hmm. But what if now with AI, if you also, we only have basically in a, in a blunt sense, one organ left, our brain. Yeah. If we outsource the capabilities of our brain to AI, maybe this time might be different. Yeah, yeah. So but there's actually a difference. That, uh, I mean, there might be, we don't yeah. know. Basically, the, the past has taught us this, that, that uh, all the worries were mostly unjustified mm. because the, it's not like unemployment rate always went up, but there might be some truth to it. And certainly the people that do lose their job in that instance might not always be the people that get the new jobs that get created from that mm. technology. So, you know, for truck drivers, it, it might not look great, but even though there might be new jobs with loading trucks and stuff like that, you know. There was this mean hashtag on Twitter and it said, it said learn to code. It was the hashtag learn to code. And that was some, I think code, it was like program. Pro, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was like um, always used when it came to that because 
the people say, well, you're a, tr- you're a truck driver, you're a retail worker, whatever, like, you can always, like, find a new job and everything. No, but I, I don't yeah. think that's the case. I mean, just looking at, looking at the numbers, there's, there's 4 million truck drivers, in, I think, in America and around 5 million truck drivers in, in, in Europe. So we're talking about 9 to 10 million people. Um, and that is only truck driving. And then you have, I mean, it, it's not only transportation and it affects, as you said, it's, it's affects so many other aspects. It's affect retail workers, cashiers, um, waiters, uh, you know, all those jobs where, where they're not going to exist yeah. in a couple of years. So there's, it's, it's millions of people. So it's not only like truck drivers. And especially like talking, going back to those big, big like tech companies like mm. Google, Amazon, Facebook, like in today's world where like everything is online and everything is all products are kind of digital there is kind of a winner takes all scenario like mm-hmm. you know back in the days when you you know you buy shoes or whatever like you might not always go to the best shoe seller but you st- you get you go to the second or third best and you still have shoes that work and they might be a little bit cheaper in, mm-hmm. in like in the digital world like if you have the best software product for a certain problem you get all that's interesting that's if you have the second best software product in a certain case no one goes to you right so right. it's kind of the winner takes all kind of thing and Amazon which creates monopoly which creates yeah. just this system where yeah. there's one strong party who's exactly just so Amazon is the best at like you know at now mm. not only like books as they started but like, but like customer retail convenience in general that they now start building supermarkets and all that stuff like um because they do offer the best product online, everyone goes there. So they, yeah. they win it. They win it all. So that's how yeah, the digital work works. That's and it's hard. You know, like that's it's brutal for yeah. for any other one like any other company as well. We'll we'll see how how fast everything's everything's gonna go, but I don't think you can regulate it, right? It's just gonna yeah. happen. I mean, I think so. The you might have to start thinking about how to regulate. I think it's actually currently happening. People start thinking about that's one thing where Democrats and Republicans mm. do agree. We, we people do have to start regulate the impact yeah. those big firms have. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, yeah. you experienced both cultures. You experienced the German culture, the American culture for quite some time, and comparing the two different approaches of how Germans look at AI versus um, Americans do, like um, where would you? consider or describe some major differences between those two countries and the way they're looking at artificial intelligence yeah um so i think the u.s or the people the companies in the u.s they find a way they do realize the economic potential of ai mm-hmm. so google facebook amazon again they they, they know how to how, how much use ai can bring and you know increasing your sales and stuff like that so um that's why they do pay they do pay for talent like they do mm. buy the best ai researchers that you know once they have them they will develop better ai models which will then produce much much more magnitudes more economic profit okay so so a lot of the research that is really cutting edge in ai is actually done it's also done at universities but it is to a big extent also done at those firms <clears throat> and i don't i don't think you see that as much in germany that, that you know firms maybe it's because the firms don't have you know as much money as Google, obviously, to, 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 to kind of think that far ahead. But, right. you know, firms pay for AI researchers. AI research is done at those companies. And, and then they kind of create the status quo of yeah. AI and what's going on. Well, because I think, talking a little bit of numbers, I think uh, the German government 
uh, last year they they set up they introduced the plan to invest three billion um, euros into AI and for ordinary people like that sounds like a lot but if you compare it to China or uh, to the states that's peanuts yeah I mean I think like open AI is just non-profit or it, it might not it might not soon be non-profit anymore but it's like this firm that has is I think Elon Musk is also involved if I'm correct but um, I think Microsoft alone gave OpenAI one billion dollars to increase like research in general intelligence and stuff like that like and the German state like it's not like yeah. it just doesn't size up right? yeah 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 but uh, that's would you say it's a, like a like a like a m- mental or like that's that's mentality would you say it's like it, that's the reason because of the German mentality like they don't like to take risks um, they're more you know like they have this watch out mentality while in in the States it's all about just do it kind of. yeah so I think they, they, it's probably a mentality thing like I think uh, the US is more willing you know companies in US are more willing to take risky investments because mm-hmm. they know you know if they are involved in the next big thing like it might really pay off whereas here you know traditional industries are like based on engineering cars like really right. solid but not the technical development like, kind of like yeah. you have in china or the states yeah so like the in software like ai like it's, it's much more intangible i guess how quickly it pays off and how much planning you can make so it's maybe a, maybe an unwillingness to to make risky investments i don't know but it's i think europe or germany probably have to make sure they soon catch up otherwise mm. they'll be left behind behind those like big big companies and it's going to happen anyway so yeah. might as well be part exactly. of it exactly right? as long as there is and there is economic benefit in developing AI mm-hmm. um, it will be done so like uh, you want to be part of that well there's also really good reasons for having AI I mean just look, I mean you can look at having automated cars self-driving cars from that perspective people are going to lose their job going to create this horror scenario but then on the other hand there's a lot of people's lives get saved by yeah, that or or as, as you said you can predict cancer just quicker from AI like there are a lot of good and ethical reasons for having AI yeah like for example DeepMind which is this like startup that was bought by Google who has made a lot of headlines for you know being the best in something called reinforcement learning where, which mm-hmm. is mostly used to play games like they beat the world champion in Go for the first time which is like a strategy game that's more, more complex than chess even yeah. Um, so they they are good at that kind of strategy thinking. They they use that same algorithm to build a model that solves the so-called or approximately at least solves the so-called protein folding problem. Which is, I mean, I'm not an expert in biology or biochemistry at all, but apparently, uh, proteins have this oh, structure that, that yeah, given their amino acids, mm-hmm. they somehow fold into a 3D shape, and it's very very computationally expensive to compute what it's actually going to look like. But that 3D shape is very crucial in determining what properties certain protein will have. So in, in looking for curing, for curing diseases, people need to know what new molecules will have which properties. And DeepMind oh, is, okay. has now, okay. has now brought, broke the state of the art or improved the state of the art by a lot using them all to, to now help basically create the next cancer or Alzheimer's uh-huh. or whatever medicine given their model. Like, there's a lot of you know medicine advantages yeah so what so what would you say to people that are afraid of AI well I would say every they're probably 
they have their reasons to be afraid and right. I think it's probably good to be skeptical mm-hmm. but yeah I mean it, you can't tell them not to be afraid because mm-hmm. it is we might be at at the start of something that's you know that has never happened to us mm-hmm. as a, as humans before but uh, I guess it's almost inevitable and you have to start thinking about how to make it safe and kind of get along with it so look at the positive sides and right. make sure like the horror scenarios are mitigated and make sure you can develop safe AI right very wise so here at Star Strip Stories we always implement the thought that failure or hardships um, your experience in your life is can be portrayed as something something positive um, and as potential to learn potential to grow can you speak uh, think of like any specific challenge in your life um, and how did you over uh, overcome it and what did you learn out of it yeah so I, so maybe not that long ago even so it was my junior year I got I had mono at a uni which a mononucleosis it's like a virus that kind of knocks you out for a couple of months and you're just always tired and mm. I couldn't row like because I, I love the team I love rowing kind of just before the season started I was out like the whole winter and you know it just drains you it's it's you mm. feel horrible no energy and you know it's tough like people sometimes don't even finish the semester if they have that mm. and that kind of coincided with me taking my first machine learning class mm. and uh, that kind of luckily enough gave me some more time to you know do my homework as, as long as it might take you know even if i'm tired so i i, I ended up it ended up coinciding perfectly with me kind of discovering machine learning and mm. like why it interests me so much well but you still need to be focused for class and if you feel tired all the time like it's 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 probably a half so so like i guess you you can't it's it's more it's not like a failure that i had but it's it's more like a um a hard time and Mm. and i I could use that i came out of the other side kind of really knowing what i wanted to do i i really knew i wanted to you know i started doing research over the summer like Mm. i knew i you know wanted to go to grad school in ai and machine learning and uh well, that's so, cool. Well, that's that's the thing, man. I every time I talk with guests, they're talking about failure, or hardships, or having a hard time. But in the end, they always claim that it has some benefits as well. You know. Yeah, you shouldn't. I mean, I think the US is much more, much better at that mentality. That, right. You know, failure is not a, like right. people like you know they find they find several companies before one works, and now you know it's PayPal or whatever. Mm. Elon Musk. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is failure true. is not a bad thing and that if you true. if you're an athlete you know that like, mm. I mean Harvard's biggest rival is Yale and mm. unluckily enough Yale was the national champion the last three years so the Harvard Yale race <laughs> I never won in the varsity so mm-hmm. the first boat but uh, my coach always like they always, he always made sure that like you know in, even in, if you up against such an opponent it's not about necessarily about winning it's about having the best effort mm-hmm. if you could bring your best effort like it's all you can do well yeah and uh, that's very wise yeah perfect uh, that, I think that's that's perfect words to wrap to wrap the interview up it was really nice talking to you man yeah it was I think, great I think it was that's a Thank we have you. a really nice hour yeah thanks um, for having me it's, it's a pleasure it's a lot of fun Um, Well, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. You find us under Star Stripe Stories. Facebook, Star Stripe Stories, as well as YouTube. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview, and I hear you guys next time. Thanks a lot.